One of the coolest things that we heard from the guest in this episode is that people aren't afraid of change. They're afraid of uncertainty. And it reminded me that we confuse the two pretty regularly based on how we feel. You know, the feeling of uncertainty is pretty similar to the feeling of imminent change. And so the feelings that we experience when faced with an uncertain situation end up feeling just like how we feel when we're facing change. And the trouble with that is that it can lead to us making decisions based on our feelings versus the facts that surround the actual situation. And oftentimes that's not the best way to do that. And that gets us to our guest in this episode of Behavioral Grooves. And to start with, though, I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. In this episode, we speak with Debbie Sutherland, an academic, an executive leader, a coach, a teacher. She's quite a Renaissance woman, really. Mm. And she has completed her doctorate of education in adult learning and organizational leadership and an executive master's degree in socio-organizational psychology, both of those from Columbia University. Yeah, pretty, pretty impressive. And she decided to write this book because she could see the blueprint for how business leaders could make better decisions in ambiguous situations. And we wanted to talk to Debbie because the point of her book is that those ambiguous and uncertain situations aren't going to go away anytime soon, and we might as well figure out how to deal with them now. <laughs> yeah. And she shared some very clever insights that acted as a catalyst for us to really get into her work. This whole idea that people aren't so afraid of change that they're really afraid of the ambiguity that often accompanies change. Well, that's just the beginning of the tips and insights that she had to share. Yeah, that's a big little secret right there, though, Tim. You know, yeah. it is. It really is. Um, and she unwraps it a bit in our conversation with her, but she also provides a bunch of other tips that we found noteworthy and think that you're going to come away from this conversation with some excellent action steps as well. Good. So with that, let's get right to it. We encourage you to sit back with a very warm cup of ambiguous tea and enjoy our conversation with Debbie Sutherland. Debbie Sutherland, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, we are excited to have you here. And as typical, we will start with the speed round. Perfect. So, Debbie, are you a coffee drinker or a tea drinker? Coffee. Uh, I think that's one of it gives you the behavior change that we're I'm looking for every morning. <laughs> <laughs> I like okay. that. I like that. And wow. I will. I got some coffee here myself today. So, <laughs> Wow. That, you know, no one has ever answered like that. That's a terrific response. Um, Debbie, would you prefer to travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Um, I'm going to say that I like the structure, but happenstance can definitely get in there. So probably leaving the house, there's a little bit of structure. But if you're eating ice cream for breakfast the next day and that's not on the itinerary, go ahead. We'll do it. Because it's a holiday. Yeah. You just became one of my favorite people for <laughs> talking about eating ice cream for breakfast because... I, if I could do that, that is that's uh, that would be my daily breakfast. If I could, I if would I could never manage do that it. unless I was traveling. So yeah, <laughs> doesn't matter if I'm traveling or not. If I could get away without having an extra hundred pounds on, I think I would do it every single day. So when people say that they hate change, do they really hate the change, or is it the ambiguity around the change that they hate? So I think we've been in the business long enough to know that change is the new constant. Everyone is. Is changing. We all know that now. I think during the research for ambiguity, that's 
and my research and my experiences working for large-scale startups, man, it's those behaviors that come out during the ambiguity when paradoxes appear, conflict of agendas, miscommunication. That's what I think people have been stung with and they fearful of it again, if it, it, yeah. feel it coming up. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. We're going to talk more about that. We're going to dig deeper into the research mm-hmm. because that that's a pretty fantastic stuff. But one of the things, this sort of our last speed round question here is just to, is it enough for people just to buckle down and muscle through ambiguous situations in order to get really good at dealing with them? I think sometimes when you buckle down, what you're doing, and I immediately get the vision of somebody's head right down and going down <laughs> an arrow and getting through it as fast as they can. But what happens in, in, in ambiguity is there's a lot of information that you don't know about and you need to pull from the periphery. You need to kind of do the 360 scan. You need to talk to people. You need to understand what's happening in their perception of the ambiguous situation to get through it. And then I think you're missing out on some opportunities if you just get through it fast. And of course, when you go through it fast, which we've all probably done, I'm going to get through this and I'm just going to make that decision tomorrow. We also don't reflect on it and talk about maybe if it was a mistake or not, because it was quite painful. We're not visiting yeah. that anymore. I'm done. So tell us about that. Let's get back to this this issue of why people hate ambiguity. We, we'll we'll get into all kinds of things in the book, but this was like one of the most insightful parts of the book for us is that that we think we hate change, but really it's not so much about just change. It's really about the ambiguity that surrounds change. That that's so difficult for us. Can can you tell us about your research and about about what that reveals? So I think there's an illusion of control that you can have that because we're all experts in our field in good times and we have great decision-making skills and collaboration with our teams. But I think it's those ambiguous moments where we're, we're caught off guard. Um, it could be our, and it, it, let's just take an example of a project at work and you know it's going off the rails um, somehow. It could be, you could be feeling this anxiety because it's your project, so then your ego or your reputation is at stake. Um, that's a you know a behavior that we have to tap into. Or it's the CEO's passion project, and so now you have to worry about somebody else's behaviors of how they're going to react to it. Um, so I think it's the we can control our own emotions in, in good times, but it's these uncertain times, this messiness where we're not able able to understand other people as well. And I think that's what gets us to this state of, I'd prefer not to go through ambiguity, give me a linear process at work. But of course, we're full of paradoxes at work as well. So preparing people and how to do some of these steps or strategies to manage, I'm not going to say manage, but maybe thrive in ambiguity. um, That Mm -hmm. is the premise of the book is to understand what can we do to cope and maybe make better decisions. Well, you mentioned talking about the information that's in the periphery earlier and uh, talking about kind of 360 and gathering these other things as opposed to putting your head down and just trying to buckle through as we were talking about that. So can you you talk a little bit more then about, so how does one go about dealing with the ambiguous situations that we all find ourselves in, as you said, in this world that is in constant flux and constant motion. Right. There was this one um, researcher, Brendan Bronner, and it was adult leadership image. And he was about actually childhood development. And he was, 
you know, saying how as a child, you're in your same household as your brother or your, your sister, you have the same values, the same upbringing, same parents, let's just say. But when you get into outer spheres of what's happening in the environment, the schoolyard, the communities that you're playing soccer with, and even larger of the, the church you go to and uh, wherever your, your communities lie, Depending on those experiences those two kids have, they could come out with different perceptions of their childhood. So mm. that kind of pre that resonated with me. So when I was doing the research for the book, it's not all, I thought it was cognitive complexities. It's how people think that gets them through it. I thought it was, but I thought there was something more. So my three research questions were, well, exactly that is, you know, how do you think and act um, in times of uncertainty and then what types of experiences and events that maybe helped you understand ambiguity to a better extent in the future? And then, of course, what systems relationships in the environment did you have? Um, because I was looking for the commonality. What's the code? What is we've all met somebody who's really good in those situations at work. They don't seem to be irrational. They haven't yelled at their team. They know they come into the meeting and they're like, okay, this is something that's going on. What? And you just admire them because they have these skills to manage all those changing variables. And that's what I was looking for. I was like, the people who do it well, I wanted to understand more so that I could help build these types of behaviors and strategies within the business. But we're talking about the business of ambiguity. And how does this academic researcher slash executive slash learner slash coach slash, you know, all the things that you are, uh, start about writing this book. You know, what, what is the catalyst that gets you actually thinking, I, I need to actually dig deeper. I need to dig into these research questions. I need to write this book. Yeah. So I think people like us who, um, who do research it, you're curious. Sure. Right. We have something we want to know. But I think mine also came from some curiosity, but also from a deep sense of frustration. It's like I working for these large scale startups, um, it's it's never going to end, right? The first 18 <laughs> months is confusing. Your people are wearing a variety of hats, it changes each and every day. Um, so I wanted to be able to understand what the better way to design an organization to help them. And also I was frustrated with leadership programs and I've been to some really good ones where you are working with these really good thought partners and you're in this zone of safety where you can test out new behaviors and thought patterns. But what happens is you come back to the business and I've seen this myself and I've seen it with other people who I've sent leadership or facilitated leadership training programs. They come back to the office and either they're too busy when they come back to actually implement anything that, or they have no power to, to implement anything and nothing changed or their line managers are too busy to listen to this great ideas that they had <laughs> and they become frustrated and either they return back to their normal way of doing business or they leave because they're looking for a better place. So it was that, that was the frustration. Yeah. That idea of going and learning something, but then coming back into the environment that you were in before. And all of a sudden you revert back to the status quo because of all the factors that you've just talked about coming into that. One of the key things that you brought up in your book that I found really fascinating, it was this idea that self-reflection, this idea of, of making sure that you have take that time to pause uh, is a, a key component of this. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that plays into 
being able to deal successfully with ambiguity? Yes. I was going to ask this question first because it does play into the book. Have you guys been to a, a group relations conference, the GRC? I have no, not. No. no. No, that's unfamiliar. Okay. So that is based on Gestalt theory. And so organizational design um, psychologists usually go to these type of conferences. A couple days they are. Um, and what it is, not a typical conference. It's an understanding of the learning from experience ethos and learning the psychodynamics of groups. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you're really doing a deep dive into power, authority, biases and assumptions. And it's the hunger games of OD specialists (laughs) without needing your own therapy. That's great. But what it does is it gives you really good critical insight and learning how to critical reflect yourself on your own behaviors. And of course, not everybody can go to these types of things or even get 360 reviews, which gives you a really good understanding of of how you think and how you show up at work and, and, and your own thinking patterns. But people do it and without a lot of training as well is just getting them to understand and, and putting up some mechanisms in place in the business to help employees to be able to. That was, I'll give you an example. This happens all the time at work is a manager has, there's a, a weekly meeting, a monthly meeting, whatever it is, and it does not go well. The employee got outed in some way, was yelled at, criticized, the feelings were raw, and he felt he or she felt exposed. And usually when that type of thing happens in the business, it resonates. You know, you quickly you quickly hear about it from other parts of the business that that meeting didn't go well over there. Right. So normally I end up speaking to these people and I ask them what happened. And usually, you can see my hands, it's about what they were thinking and what they were doing. And they had no idea what was happening in the room because they didn't understand, like I was talking about before, they really were taking contextual information into their deliverable and how they were presenting. So at those moments in the business, you can get them to start understanding critical reflection is, yes, you have to reflect back, but critical reflection is you actually understand your thinking pattern and maybe where you went wrong or where that assumption or blind spot was so that you can have a better future action. Mm. So that's, yeah. if you can get yeah. that one into the business and, you know, just normalize it. So it's like, Hey, let's just take a deliberate pause here. Let's talk about that. What happened? What were we thinking when we did that instead of it's all about the behaviors and stuff? Cause people, you know, we might be too sensitive to talk about, but, that that is, I think, one of my biggest roles is helping line managers get to that critical reflection piece. Is that built into the organization as a process piece that you you train people to do? Is it become just a normative component within the organization? How do you build in that purposeful reflective pause? Yeah. So we're doing we're doing lessons learned. I mean, obviously, um, lots of companies do them and lots of companies don't do them. <laughs> right? I would probably argue that more companies don't do them than, yeah, than do do them. Why would we go back to what we didn't do well? And, and Exactly. Yeah. But we try to normalize it by using a template. It's like what went well with the technology we use, what went well or didn't go well with the resources that we use. So it's not about what that person did or didn't do. Let's just kind of get a business context involved. And then we do regular check-ins where we we're giving a coaching 
we're helping our blind managers to have a coaching culture where they're more curious mm. and that is their default position as opposed to a judgment or a directive. So if we get that, that also helps. And there's one more that I'm trying to get into the business as well is journaling because uh. you can definitely find patterns on how you think. I know I've done my crazy erratic, oh my God, I'm the problem. <laughs> and, and that's why the meeting didn't go well. But maybe, you know, senior people don't want to journal because um, maybe they have a preconceived notion of what that is. But we're all taking daytimers into the office anyway. We're all writing notes. So I'm just asking them to take a tick. With The last time you got irritated because it was aimed at somebody or something or the process, it was an irritation. Just mark it down. Just mark mm. it And then find out how many ticks you have per day. Find out how many ticks you have per week. And then you'll be able to see a pattern. It was like, oh, yeah, well, I met 15 different people. So I can't, that's not the common denominator. Maybe, maybe it's me and how I'm thinking and how I'm reacting and my emotions attached to certain things. So that's how I'm getting, or I'm trying to get people to understand critical reflection. I love that idea of the, A, the journal. I have a big journaler myself. I think that there's a key piece there. But even more importantly, it's, it's how you use that journal and as you're talking about is is just making ticks or figuring out a way of exploring, going back into what you're doing on a daily basis to measure that and then to to be able because that's that measurement piece is where you're able to yes. then decipher the noise, the as you said, I loved how you said this in this, the 10,000 butterflies that come, you know, and then you have to uh, figure out the pattern within those 10,000 butterflies, which it seems crazy. You can't do that. That's just, it's a great, I, I can't see that when it's happening, but if you can journal it, you can track that. All of a sudden it's like, oh, I see all the red butterflies are going here. All the yellow butterflies are going there. And now I can figure that out. So. Sorry, I have a friend, um, Dr. Pamela Booth. She did her um, doctorate on behavioral analysis. And she, when you were talking about measurements, I thought this was very profound because what she does, it's a simulated environment. She gets like um, these big financial types in, in these leadership courses and they give, they give them 10 people in a circle and they give them a business problem and you, they have to discuss it. And it goes on for at least an hour. But what she's doing off to the side, and, and they know she's doing this, is taking off all the different behaviors, interrupting, supporting, negating, and finding out how many times each of these senior people are. Did you know that um, Mary um, only speaks after Tim and never before? And so you kind of get this pattern. And it was only after this the quantitative was shown back to the executive because they said they're a great communicator. Of course. <laughs> but it was only when they were given this feedback in, 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 that, in that fashion that they were able to understand how they were shutting down people and not getting the best from them and their own biases coming into a lot of these conversations. So uh, that's a simulated one. That's, you know, harder to do in the business, but with effort, it does great, create some good change. Yeah. It, it, talking about the journaling, it just reminds me of how you were really open about sharing your own life experiences in the book, uh, I, I, which I found really authentic. And really, and, and, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, of course. But I, I mean, I, I'm assuming that this was a pretty conscious decision that you made to kind of go, okay, I'm going to sort of splay myself open in this. And 
I think it's a really brave thing to do. But again, I felt like it really added authenticity and uh, your voice to to the book. Uh, was it that intentional or did you feel like you were just compelled to do it one way or the other? I was trying in the book. Okay, so the dissertation, as much as my husband loves me, he couldn't read it. you know so the only people who read it is probably my advisors and i knew i just knew that there was some good information there for people who wanted to make positive change in the business and and help during it was ambiguity is not going away um so i thought there were some uh, tips in here a blueprint per se so i knew i had to write a book and they always say that you write a book what you know and so i i know about my mistakes Hopefully I'm a lot better and I'm still learning along the way. And I still get caught out, you know, even the other day, uh, the assumptions that we do, but at least I can name it now. And then I, and I verbalize it with my team. So they are learning through my mistakes as well. And we all do, we get caught, but at least if we're becoming more aware of when we are kind of going off track here and running up that ladder of inferences so that you can calm down and say, okay, let's get some more data points before I make that big assumption. Again, talking about self-reflection and measurement and all those fun yeah. things that we just talked about. Yeah, You bring up mental models within the book quite a bit. You want to expand upon what some of those mental models around um, ambiguity are and how they, they play into this larger picture? Yeah. And, you know, I think it, I, I remember when I was a young <laughs> younger professional (laughs) and I saw line managers and they had stern opinions. They had very solid convictions and they never swayed even when more information was there. And I thought that was actually a good leader when you were, you know, Uh solid in in your convictions. And it was, and I thought of course, because I could be swayed by new information. I thought I was wishy-washy and is only through my journey of understanding myself through, you know, various psychometric assessments that we do, And then it was, I think it was really, I was wonderful to see the research show that, is that the people who thrived in ambiguity, the executives that I was interviewing, they'll change their mind. No problem. Mm -hmm. Here's, um, and and if you've got more information that helps along the way, they were okay with it. They didn't lose space. They didn't get stuck in their competence, their executive mindset, or my experiences say this, therefore that's what's going to happen in the future. So I did call it the ambiguity mindset. Really, Mm -hmm. I did want to name it because it's a long definition, but really it's into two parts. It really is understanding how you were thinking and acting and learning from your experiences from that. And then that Mm. becomes part of the ambiguity mindset. I'm not just thinking about it because thinking about and being clever uh, about what's happening is okay, but doing something, the behavior that comes out of that, that helps everyone along that journey is what I think the ambiguity mindset should be about. That's cool. It, it also reminds me a little about how, how you point out the difference between uh, reflection in action versus reflection on action. Uh, I think that this was, a, this was a kind of a big light bulb moment for me. Can you talk a little bit about the, the difference between those two? Sure. That was from theorist um, Donald Sean, um, where he did extensive research on that. So reflection... On action is that critical reflection piece that we were talking about earlier when you're actually taking that deliberate pause and you're sitting down and going, okay, what was really happening at that meeting that didn't go well? But reflection in action would be where that line manager, when he was presenting, realizing he was going off the rails and irritating somebody or not paying attention to a a key stakeholder, 
is really kind of taking that 360 scan very quickly. So it's happening in seconds and then being able to pivot and saying, okay, listen, why don't we do this? Or why don't I try to regroup and, and present this in a different way? Or what would you like to talk about next? So that's the in-action piece where you get better at it, at doing that critical reflection piece. And it yeah. just speeds up yeah. so that you can get into the moment and create a better outcome. Yeah. When you just say that, it just, it reminds me so much of Viktor Frankl and the idea that, you know, when he talked and I'm going to mess this quote up, so I apologize, but, you know, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is where we we take our action. And, you know, the idea there is that, in the moment, if you can even stop and, and take that reflection before that stimulus, which is going to drive a certain response and being saying, do I choose to do this? Do you know, how am I impacting the others in the room? What is going on? Just paying attention to that moment by moment piece as we're going through, I think is often a difficult piece for people to do. But if you can start doing that, I think it, it really changes the way that you show up, but also how others see you, as well as I think a, a, a host of other really great qualities that come right. out of that. Yeah. And just being curious. I think I'll, I'll always mm. do that. If, if you're stuck, be curious, ask a question, <laughs> right? It, it, it's a good pause. <laughs> and then somebody else has to think for you for a second. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's why Tim always asks questions. There you go. <laughs> You've just uh, revealed me yeah. in that in that regard. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think that that's been my greatest defense mechanism for my whole life is, oh, I don't know what's going on yeah. here. I think I'll just ask a question. So, uh, you talk about the dress in the dress, the dress. in the book, you know, with, you know, with, with yeah, <laughs> the pop culture, the social media sensation. And it's, it is a pretty classic situation of, of where we, we see different things. And so there's something ambiguous about that. Can you tell us about about your reflections on the dress. So the dress, uh, the example I thought would be good because I obviously I wanted to bring the book to the hands of lots of people, not have a, a lot of academic prose in it. So I thought that was fun because it was relevant and, it, and it, it, it did get people start thinking, which is a good thing. But one of the examples the executive used and was he was in, he was the CEO of a shipping company and he you know, came to work one day and there were 30 workers just didn't show up. And so he was wondering why, and he was talking to HR and how come, where's these 30 people and I need them to, to do their jobs. But it turned out that there was a celebration in their villages and say so they all just left and he didn't know and he didn't understand. So that perception piece comes into, because I think Perot, Perot, Parajo, uh, the author of, or the researcher for the dress. Yeah. It's uh -huh. really about your social standing or your social um, environment of that's what it was about. It, the different perspectives was the environment that you were in and that created the different perspectives. And so for the executive as well, he was in a different country working with people, um, foreigners from, lot, from this other country. And of course, he didn't know their values. He didn't know their cultures and he didn't know the ceremonies of it all. And so next time he could build that into it. But that was his aha moment. And the I'll bring in Kurt Lewin is, 
behavior is the function of the person and environment. I've got it tattooed somewhere, right? Because (laughs) (laughs) that's a really good theory to all of us. I also trying to bring that into the, the business is being aware of the environment that you're in and how that does change your perceptions. Yeah. Just, I, I want to make a share. So for listeners, the dress that we're talking about is a social phenomenon where people saw a kind of fuzzy picture of a dress and some people claim that it was gold and others claim that it was black and blue or what well, I can't re- right. remember, but they were very strong in their perception of this dress. And some people saw it one way and others saw it another way. And they just couldn't understand how anybody else couldn't see that this dress was a gold dress or this was a blue and and black dress or white dress, whatever it was. And so that I think is really interesting, particularly as then, you know, Debbie, as you're talking about this idea of, you know, the perception piece, this idea and the researchers that you, t- you talk about, you know, it was about that environment that they're in and are they, have they come from more being outside in natural light? And then you, your brain draws certain conclusions about how shades and different factors work versus if you've been more into in illumination light. So your story about the president and kind of having the different perception about what is going on, I think is very apropos in, in this piece. And so thank you for that. And Kurt Lewin, who can't, who, who doesn't love Kurt Lewin? Yeah. There you, go. <laughs> exactly. you were named after him, weren't you, Kurt? Where, I, or, where, you know, if I wasn't, I'm taking that to, I'm, I'm just running with that. So, you know, Hey, university of Iowa, he was there for a year or two, just uh, oh, you know, okay. a little less than me. Excellent. There you go. Yeah. Let's get back to the ambiguity mindset. How about that? Do you think it's intuitive or is it something that we really need to learn? I think it's, it's a really powerful thing. Uh, that that you bring up and that you've coined here, but is it is it something we can kind of come to intuitively, or is does there need to be some kind of rigor around it? I, I think I think some people could definitely get to it. It's I think it's their upbringing. I think if they um, have been immersed in, in different environments, and as I was talking about in my book, some of the executives that I interviewed had you know a pretty interesting upbringing um, from being in war-torn Lebanon or working, being expats in Greece and moving to different countries and different schools and living in poverty. They, all of those life lessons teach you something. Is it, but are you able to tap into that experiences and learn from it? Or are you just going through life, um, moving to the next goal or target? So I'm going to have to say that, yes, we all have it. We can all learn from our experiences. It does take a little bit of effort though. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. I like that. And this idea that, you know, some, as you said, some leaders that you talked with have it naturally and some maybe need to to work on it. But where do you see leaders making mistakes around ambiguity? Where is it that they tend to maybe take a misstep and don't handle ambiguity in a way that's going to be beneficial for them or their organization? Oh, I've got three reasons. Okay. Just one. (laughs) I think sometimes their expert mindset gets in the way because they are the CEO or the president or of the company and they've got lots of experiences. So they should be able to get, and they've got trusted advisors around them. So they should get through it. But I think sometimes in those, uh, those situations, maybe it's only four advisors but that's not the entire company. That's not boots on the ground people who are really experiencing some of the variables that are happening. So I think sometimes they get into their silos. I think sometimes the ego might get in the way. And the other one is the systems thinking. We make fast decisions in business. I mean, I love the academic part of my life, 
because we can talk about a thread of a theory for eight hours, right? <laughs> but in a, in, in a business, you know, you're making a hundred decisions before noon. So we tend not to think of cause and effect because there's time and space in between what happens and resonates through the business. So mm. I think we, we rapid fire decisions and we're, and those are short-term decisions because we're going to get systemic errors. So I think if paying attention, maybe just taking that deliberate pause of what is the scenario planning for this decision and talking to a few people about it doesn't take much time, but then still make your decision, but at least you're informed. Is one of the things with the advisors that you talk about, and I've seen this in some instances and I've heard about it more in others, is the the people that some leaders surround themselves with are more yes people than they are the mirror reflecting back on either that leader or a lens to look at the organization. So in other words, what they're doing is just mimicking back to the leader what the leader is already saying. So is that part of that issue? And if so, are there tricks that we can do to help deal with that from that perspective? Anything that you found from any of the research or the work that you've done? Um, it's it's tough, right? Your, your inner circle. Mm. Um, and I have talked to executives where they haven't been able to make positive change because there's a very strong opinion in the room or it is the actual decision maker in the room that's not swaying. I think that the only thing they can do is continue to ask questions. Have we thought about this? Have we thought about that? Because then it's not an attack on the person, the executive. It's more about the situation and the perceived outcome of what it would be. There's another theory that blew my mind. There's, you know, there's a few in, in, in my academic career that um, changed the way I think instantly. Systems thinking, when I learned about it, changed my, how I think instantly. Mm. The other one is um, Robert Keegan's um, theory of subject-object development theory. And that one is about the level of consciousness so that if you are the subject and if it's all about me and what I decide and what I want to hear and what, what I can do, you're the subject and you're immersed in all of these emotions and you're kind of stuck in that vacuum. But if you can get to the object, which just means that you are in control of your thinking patterns and, and your decisions, you can look down on any situation with the objective view and then be able to help make positive. You might not change the direction of the strong decision maker in the room, but at least you're desensitized to it so that you're not inadequate as you're feeling that it's a personal issue because your, your voice is not heard. Mm, that's hard. That's hard to do. That's really it? hard. I, happened last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, it happened yesterday yeah. uh, for me. <laughs> and the, this part of the conversation about the expert mindset can, can get in our way. It's interesting for me working in an organization where people think of me as an expert. They're coming to me with a specific question. They're expecting an expert response. And they actually don't like it when I say, I don't know, we might have to research that. That's so where I, I feel like I'm adopting the, let's be curious, I'm not certain about that. But the other people have this expectation of like, well, wait a minute, you're the expert. You should just know. You should just tell us. Just give us the answer. Reach into your behavioral science bag of tricks and just let us know. You know, just give it to us. Does that happen to you? Do you, do you get in that situation? Yeah, because it's, it's, it's about you then. You. Yeah. <laughs> the answer, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's a little bit hard. So if you're in the object, I, okay, so we were just talking about being curious and asking questions. I have found that executives who are the decision makers in the room 
if you are still proposing different alternatives, they may not accept it, but I feel that they are reflecting on it a day or two later. So you still mm. have to give your opinion. Maybe it doesn't have to be, I think, because that's hard because then it's a direct conflict to what the decision maker is thinking, but it's, have we mm. discussed this? Have we thought about that? Have, can we get a wider angle lens on the situation and using a different vocabulary to tackle it? I'm not sure if that's answering your question because they want an answer from you and you, you, you can't use the, the it depends type answer, which <laughs> works for us right. in OD. But, um, yeah. but just, just, yeah. just using that coaching culture, I think gets you a lot of ground in those difficult moments. Debbie, I love the idea of the language that we use and how we have to adjust that language in order to accommodate the differences that we're we're facing with the different people, depending upon what they're doing. And, and with those leaders continuing to ask those questions. One of the people that we've interviewed is Kwame Christian, who talks about compassionate curiosity. And so I think it's this idea and in, in the compassionate curiosity, which we talk about all the time, Tim, on the show, we need to get Kwame back on. But this idea that we need to be curious and ask those, have, have that curiosity that you talked about and ask questions um, of that other person in a compassionate way that is that is not accusatory, but is uh, they're authentically trying to understand. And I'm feeling like what you're just telling us here is that that is probably a pretty good method for even dealing with those experts who are those leaders who are in that expert mindset is having some really compassionate curiosity around why are we going down this road and have we thought about all these and what is the outcome that you're looking for and what are the factors that are going to show success and how do we know that's going to happen? All of those different types of questions that we can ask when we're in those situations. Is that, am I overreading that? No, that's, that's perfect. I think that's, it's totally aligned. Absolutely. I, we, we might've been in these environments and the listeners as well, where it's a blame game and, and you mm. might have been had a line manager you added or within a team that had that. And that trust is immediately crushed and it takes a long time to get it back. And so being able to have a good language within, within teams, rational discourse is what I call it. Cause you're going to have disagreements, but let's just have proper ways of having it. So it's not about you always or you never it's, I think the project needed this. And again, that's more of the object view as opposed to being yeah. the subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about if we switch over to music? All right. Um, Debbie, we'd like to get into something that you, you kind of perked up when, before we started recording about this. Let's imagine that you're on a desert island for a year. Oh, I am. And- oh, wait. Sorry. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> but you're alone. Let's say that you're alone. And life is great, by the way. You haven't been exiled. Uh, but you get to take two, I don't know, sometimes the, the image just kind of gets weird for me. Uh, but let's say that you get to take two musical artists' catalogs with you. What two musical artists do you take? Okay, well, I, I listen to any type of music, but I'm a runner, so I like music that's got a good beat that you can run to. So um, okay. I think a little Eminem would uh, would probably probably get you moving okay. on your island. Okay. And then I have just found the virtues of Evaldi in Four Seasons. So I love wow. that. So I think a little classical music as well would um, well be the the, du- the, du- the flip side of it. 
I was going to say those are very different kind of genres that you're 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 pulling from there. And I I would be um, in the Eminem camp, not only just is it kind of upbeat, kind of going, get your blood going, but uh, just the storytelling um, within there. That is the piece that that I love of of some of the, the work that he does. Yeah, Tim, you probably have listened extensively to Eminem's catalog, I'm sure. So I, I know it. By heart, <laughs> not. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm I'm vaguely familiar with his work. Do you, as a runner, do you like to time? Do you do you think about like beats per minute? Do you do you like to have music that actually works with your the cadence of your your feet? Yeah, like, I, you- I I think that that helps me quite a bit. I I I'm going to say that I I say I'm a runner, but because I've run a few marathons but that was a very long time ago. I'm probably a trotter now or a jogger. There's a few categories that I've probably fallen into. Um, But I definitely on those long distance to keep you that turnover of your foot, the faster music does help, I find. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's interesting that when I was running a lot that there is this weird temporal experience of, uh, as a musician, I I have a pretty good feel for uh, timing for songs pretty good. Not, not, not perfect by any means. Uh, but when I was running and listening to that song, everything seemed to slow down. You know, when, when my heart rate is escalated, the experience of the song actually slows down and it's kept you running. Though? Have you pardon? Did it keep you running? It didn't make you slow oh. down and walk. No, it did not. <laughs> no. But then I had to, I, then I really had to think about, well, what is the beats per minute of this song? And, how do I want to actually set that up in such a way that I'm I'm running to it and not sort of experience this weird, almost drug-induced, like, uh, I don't know, yeah. illusion and, or And that's happened to me before, but then I slowed down. Yeah. yeah. So I, oh, you and did. I didn't realize oh. why I liked certain music until I did a little bit of research and I needed to add to the playlist. And I'm like, oh, that's why. It's because it's the, I think it's one, I'm going to say 146 beats per minute or 148. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That actually sounds about right for, you know, for like a, a you know, eight and a half minute mile. Mr. 158 beats six, 8.26 second mile. If you just file that you get with to- my, with my short stride. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, someone with a longer stride is going to have different, but uh, that actually ruins. Yeah. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Debbie. Thank you. This has been very informative. And I'm really happy that we had you on because I think uh, it's, this is a really great insight for not just leaders, um, but anybody who has to deal with the situations that we deal with every single day where we're not sure exactly what's going on and the out- potential outcomes are going multiple different ways. And we just have to be in this world where ambiguity is constantly around us and how do we handle that? So thank you. This has been very good for us. Thank you both for inviting me to the show. I'm thrilled to have been here. Our pleasure. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas about what we learned from our discussion with Debbie, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our ambiguous brains. That was an easy one, Tim. That was probably the easiest one I've had. 
I don't know, in months. Yeah, it's a softball. I it was it. a softball. I, yeah. I could have maybe gone in uncertain or... Um, don't overwork it. Stress-filled <laughs> or multifaceted, different abilities to see the future kind of oh, brains. Way know, overthinking it. The dark eye of my mind that can't <laughs> envision what's moving forward brain. But no, I, I just went with ambiguous because it was easy. <laughs> I don't know where to go from that. <laughs> but let's just start, I felt like let's let's start with what did you find interesting from Debbie's conversation? How about like the big thesis? Uh, actually, maybe it's not her thesis, but it's the biggest insight for me is we are not afraid of change. We are afraid of the ambiguity that often accompanies change. Bing, right there, boom, head explosion. I think I think that's a t-shirt. I think we're going to have to put that out on a t-shirt and I think I'm going to wear it every day. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, you it, it's a really good point and Debbie brings it up and I think it's it's very insightful. And this idea that change in of itself, wow, that's frightening. It's it's not nearly as frightening as the ambiguity or the uncertainty right. that accompanies that change. If we knew that you know, making this change would be a hundred percent guaranteed to get this output. Change wouldn't be nearly as scary as it is, but that's not the way that we work. And we have the status quo bias that says, even the devil that I know is better than the devil that I don't know. Even if that, you know, that opportunity out there is much better. So we are going to be talking with Annie Duke um, in uh, an upcoming episode, and in yeah, her, she has a new book, Quit, that we got a pre-read copy of, and she talks about this very thing in there, this idea that it's that uncertainty and different pieces, and even when we know things are better, we we stick with the status quo oftentimes. So Yeah. You know, under underpinning this, this idea of the ambiguity, I, there were a couple of just things that I found noteworthy, and when she talked about the illusion of control, I thought that that was a really important thing and how it ties into this idea that that we want, especially as executives or leaders in organizations, we want to be seen as expert. We want to be mm. perceived as uh, always being right. Uh, you know, I, I face this right in my own my own situation. And it's really by kind of letting go of the ego that can help us get beyond the illusion of control and, and start to actually embrace and sort of live in the ambiguity of, I'm not sure. I mean, some of our, our greatest conversations with some of the greatest and most successful researchers in psychology, when we ask them a question, sometimes they'll say, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, not sure. sure about that. Yeah. And that, that always inspires me. So I have to keep reminding myself that kind of, you know, be expert. Don't, it's not stop being an expert, but Give up on the illusion of control and let go of the ego a little bit. I think all leaders need to include those three words in their vocabulary a lot more. I'm not sure, or I don't know. Yeah. Let's explore it. Let's yeah. find out. Because yeah. that is where the power lies. And I, I fully, fully agree with your, your assessment there. Yeah. The second thing I think that was really important for me was that ambiguity and uncertainty aren't going away. Like I really never, <laughs> like 
Never, what do you, you know, mean? It's going to get much clearer. Gosh, the world with the worldwide internet and all of that and all of the information that is at our fingers, we should all just have the data that we can make clear, good decisions. And yet we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so because I think in part because we under undervalue change uh, and yet it's inevitable, right? It, it's going to happen. Taxes, death, change. Yeah. You know? So so let's let's actually embrace it and embrace the ambiguity that comes with it because we we survive it all the time. We've got a history of all the years of my life. I've been through all the changes I've been through. I survived. Yeah. I'm here. I'm still and, here. And those changes led you to where you are, which is a pretty damn good spot because you're talking with me, damn it. Come on. I mean, there you go. Best best spot in the whole world is to have a conversation <laughs> with you, Kurt. It is. I'm, that's, there's, there's no but hyperbole no, in that. Yeah. You bring up really a couple of great points there, right? This idea that, look, we need to just embrace this. This idea that the world is dynamic and we often get caught up in this I. I don't want to change because I don't know what's coming forward. And I think that's what Debbie is saying as well. And when you look back, look back five years, look back 10 years on your life, the person that you were then compared to the person that you are now, the situation that you're in, what you're doing, how you're approaching things. I mean, damn it. We've had a huge pandemic that has happened to the entire world that everybody has gone through. And yes, it has caused massive destruction and devastation and, you know, death in many situations, but the vast majority of the world is surviving and we're doing pretty good. Yep. And it just shows how resilient we are and that we can't be afraid. I mean, if you want to talk about an ambiguous situation, think about what it was like at the beginning of the pandemic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Go back to that conversation that we had with Christina Bicchieri when I asked her, we're we're like two months into the pandemic. And I said, so how much longer is this thing going to last? And another six weeks, you know, two months. <laughs> well, I still <laughs> feel so foolish about that. And yet it, it's, it, I use it as a reminder to go, we didn't know what we were talking about. No, no, we didn't. And, and we had experts giving us advice as you talked about. And yet that advice was, wrong in many places. It was right in others. And so it was ambiguous. What is the right information? What is the not right information? And it's hard to tell in the moment. But if you keep an open, going back to some of the, the other episodes we've had, Chuck Wisner, right? Keeping that open hand oh, and kind yeah, of keeping yeah. that idea that we have to continue to, you know, just don't get to yes, that idea that, oh, well, this expert's saying this, so yes, I'm going to agree with them. Be a little bit skeptical and, and ask some more questions around that and various different things. Let's get to some of the tips that Debbie talks about, because I think those tips were really good. And I think, you know, this is some action that I know I'm, we're going to take one, one of them, right, is, is, you know, she talked about doing an audit of oh, interaction yeah. styles and this to. idea of doing that. And and I, I threw this on Tim right before the show. So um, he's like, <laughs> but I'm going, we need to do that. We need to understand. Do, yeah. does, do, do I always dominate the conversation? Probably yes. You know, and but when do we interact? Do you always follow up something when I say X and I always follow up something when you say Y? And how does Mary get involved in all of this? And so 
uh, we need to do that because I think there's patterns and we need to figure out those patterns. So, which means being intentional, right? Keeping track. Uh, the, the audit idea is for me sort of pa- uh, pairs up and marries with the idea of being intentional about our lives and our interactions with other people. And after 300 plus episodes, it's good to take an audit and see, okay, how's this yeah. working? What can yeah. we do to, what can we do to improve it? What can we do to, to keep our own relationships healthy and uh, balanced and to make each episode, you know, the best that it can be. Yeah. Well, and she talked about this idea that, you know, just make a check mark every time you get pissed off about something <laughs> right. or a piece right. and then watch to see if there's patterns. And I think it's not just about being pissed off. I mean, I think you can do that about a lot of different types of things, but just tracking that for just a week. Oh my gosh. The information that you could yeah. get from that. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, it, could, it could be invaluable. It <laughs> could be. It could be. What else? I loved her talking about the ambiguity mindset. This, I, and again, this, this, combines with intentionality, something that we've talked about a ton, but it's like trying to understand, and this ties into the keeping track of of stuff, because if we can understand how we deal with ambiguous situations, how we've come through them, look at the process that we've used, having a little understanding actually allows us to get deeper into saying, I can be in ambiguous situations and be settled and make better decisions. And I can put that knowledge into action yes. in a better way than I have in the past. And I, I think that of all the mindsets that we talk about, the ambiguous mindset is at once the most challenging and could be the most rewarding. Amen, brother. Amen. There you go. The other piece, oh, there's lots of pieces. Yeah. The other piece that I really liked that she talked about was the we often reflect on action after it's happened. Oh, why did I do that? What were the impetuses to this? But if we can move that reflection closer to being in the moment as opposed to after the moment while we're in the action, so what's acting on me? Why do I feel this way? What is the, why do I want to, you know, take my fist and punch this person versus, you know, walk away or whatever else. And I'm using a kind of heated kind of situation, but it doesn't have to be that you can be reflective in the moment. It just is taking that pause. And I think, you know, the Viktor Frankl piece of between stimulus and response is a space. And within that space is this opportunity and the the wider that we can make that space, the more time we can reflect upon that. I think that was really cool. That's really the big benefit, isn't it? It's re- reflecting in the action, in the moment, uh, so that you can pivot. You could do something different. You get to you get to choose differently than just you get to right? choose. I think that's the, the Maybe, I, yeah. you get to choose in the moment as opposed to the moment choosing which direction you're doing, and then you got to go back. Yeah. The last piece, I think, is just the subject-object piece. Oh, yeah. Right? The, yeah. And I this is always, kind of a favorite of yours, isn't it? Well, it's yeah. I mean, it's, it's just an interesting piece. One of the things I've, I've done in some training sessions and other things that I've done is we get people out and we have them role-play things. And then we say, all right, 
we ask the audience, we give like one participant this, you're playing this role and here's what's going on in your head. We give this other participant, here's your role, here's what's going on. And maybe you're crossing each other in the, in the hallway at office and stuff. Right. And then what we do is we say, okay, now if you were just a video camera up in the corner and you saw what was going on here and, and it was recording sound and stuff, you know, what happened? And what is in, invariably happens in these is that when the audience is looking, they're making assumptions about what is going on in each other's heads. But the action and the words themselves never, ever did that. And that's what we have happen, right? And so, you know, that's the subject of your story and get out to be the object. And so it's like often I think about this as like, what does the video camera up there that doesn't have these emotional kind of things see and hear and we that's a really good way of looking at things as opposed to sometimes we get become the object of you know you know of the story I, right i agree which kind of gets back to you have to let go a little bit of the ego and this endowment of everything that i'm doing is perfect because i'm doing it and move away and try to be more objective in the way that we look at our activities our behaviors our the speech that we use the words that come out of our mouth and kind of reflect on that in a way that says, well, someone on the other end might be receiving this differently. Their experience is different than mine. This is, this is an important part of just being human. So the context and, and past environment that people have had <laughs> might make a difference, Tim? Is that what you're saying? Amen. Yeah, Amen there we go. All right. Folks, I think that touches on the key points that we're taking away from our discussion with Debbie. I think if you've learned a little from Debbie, we encourage you to go out and buy her book and get a deeper dive into how to deal with ambiguity. And if you like what Tim and I had to say. Well, or if you had some bad gene that actually allows you to enjoy this kind of quirky view of the world. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Just Excuse me for the interruption. Our, our bad humor, as, as uh, one commenter said, you're not comedians. No, we're not. But we have we're, fun with this. So, you yes. know, we... we if, if you do like this, then we ask that you give us a little support. Yeah, and I would say that there's three ways that you can do that. Notice that we're in action mode, by the way. We're not in reflection mode now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so take an action. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So the first thing you could do would be to scroll down to the bottom of your app that you're listening to this podcast in and check the star rating for whatever you think we deserve. Yeah. Just quick check, check a star and submit. Yeah. And the second is to maybe take 30 seconds and leave us a short review. You just write down a few words of praise and gratitude that will help other people decide whether or not they would be a good candidate to listen to behavioral grooves, right? The third thing you could do would be jump out of this page, go over to our Patreon page and make a small monthly donation. Now, we do this for the love of it. More than 300 episodes are in our library and we make it available at no charge to listeners in more than 170 countries. So we would hope that you join the folks who have already come on board and help us offset a little bit of the ongoing costs of production. That would be really appreciated. Yeah. Now, now notice that two of those were no cost kind of things. They were free. One, you can, you know, just for the price of a cup of coffee, you can, you can support us, you know, every month. That would be very helpful. Another way is just share this podcast with your friends. Talk about it. Post about it on social media. Get other people involved and invited. That's, That's right. a third way that is a no-cost issue for you. It's a free way to help us out, and we would greatly, greatly appreciate it. And so thanks to you 
And thanks to Debbie for sharing some great tips. And uh, yeah, we appreciate all of you. Thank you. Uh, We hope that you take some of these cool ideas with you this week as you go out and find your groove. Mm -hmm.